What's up, guys? It is Tuesday, November 9th, 2017, and we are back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. How you doing there, Schwan? I'm doing all right. Yourself? Doing good, sir. Doing good. Can you turn me down a little bit on your end, please? Yeah. Great, great. You got it? So, man, yeah, um, we got quite a bit to talk about today, man. Quite a bit, don't we? Yeah, there seems to be a lot of stuff going on right now. So before we jump into all of that, I need you to do me a favor, man. Why don't you let everybody know where they can find us? Uh, you can find us on YouTube, um, iTunes, and you can also find us on SoundCloud. Awesome, awesome, man. I always appreciate you doing that. So, um, man, we have quite a bit to talk about, and I want to try oh, wait, to... Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, before we get too far into it. In honor of the ESPN 30 for 30... I wanted to oh. refer to myself as the wheeling, dealing, Twitter follower stealing, Black Jordan Breen. Woo! Don't get me started. Look, I, almost, I forgot. I almost put in a whole separate section on just that, um, just that thirty for thirty. Man, like it's crazy. I know so much about Ric Flair. You know, like just period. I know so much about the man, but that. It's just it, man. It almost it was so. It almost brought me to tears at the end. Like it almost brought me to tears at the end. I'm alive. I'm thankful he was alive to be a part of that. Um, gosh, like I just, I yeah, just ima- imagine how how hard that would have hit if he would have died when he was having those health issues, like a couple of weeks right before it was released. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't even put it in words. Talk about how um, how important that guy has been to my life from a sport, like not as a historical figure just from the fact that he um just a huge star huge cross yeah i mean he influenced people i mean there's people who are motivated by actors who play superheroes or certain roles like they built their whole life around what an actor's done rick flair he was like he was that guy he was good with the girls he was stylish and he was tough who didn't want to be rick flair I mean, who didn't want to be the man? You're like, like that's Conor exactly mcgregor what. wanted to be him that's his that's his whole act he still does i mean he still yeah. does like I, we can, that can be a whole other show. I'm not sure how how I'm gonna cover that. That could be a whole other show by itself. But Ric Flair is like that that 30 for 30. If you have not watched it, go watch it. Sit down, spend the whole two hour and a half, spend the whole hour and a half watching it, and just enjoy it. Is there's no other way to um really do? Like don't be on the phone, don't do anything or anything like that. But just sit there and watch it and enjoy it and embrace it even if you're not a wrestling fan just sit there and and watch the whole damn thing oh, I, I know i'll watch it. i'm gonna watch it at least two or more two more times this week <laughs> i guarantee you that yeah definitely like, I, I definitely plan on watching it again as soon as i possibly can but with that in mind you know, let's go ahead and let's let's look at what happened in the world of mixed martial arts we got quite a bit to talk about because um there's just so much that's been going on since saturday where we had us ufc 217 and Three new champions, three title fights, three new champions, and all three by pretty impressive stoppages. Let's start with um, Michael Bisbing and, and GSP, where we saw George St. Pierre come back from four years away from the sport. Four years away, and then snatched away Bisbing's title um, in a pretty clear fashion. I, when I watched the fight, I was thinking that he was definitely slowing down. He started looking bad. I thought that, you know, I was having questions. You and I were talking about it on Twitter right there on the spot. We were having questions about how he was looking. Um, and he landed a, a clean, and I think all three champions won by left hook, too. 
all yep. three guys. So, or all, all three champions. And man, he landed that left hook, dropped him, scrambled to his back, and got the finish. Yeah, and he had him hurt bad. It wasn't like he just, it was a flash knockdown. He really had him rocked. That was what, that was actually what kind of shocked me. I figured he could, he could hurt him, but like, it was possible he could probably could have finished him with strikes from that position, to be honest. I think. I think so. Yeah, I, I really think so. I don't think Bisping was, um, prepared at all to defend if he would have really followed up with some heavy strikes it would have given him the best it would have given Bisping the best chance to survive but I, I really think he could have finished with strikes because when Bisping went down he went down pretty hard he didn't just get flash knocked down he was getting right back up he was sitting on his butt for a minute definitely was and um what what do you what, what, what was your overall uh, analyzation or uh, what's your analysis of JSP's performance looking at him now compare him to you know what he looked like back in the day and seeing him at a heavier weight class what are some of your thoughts well the main thing when we first when we first mentioned this fight the first thing i i told you was like gsp is not a dumb guy he's not one of these dudes who's about ego and who's about being an athlete he's going to take fights that he knows he can win because he's a he's a martial arts mixed martial arts athlete he's like almost a scientist his goal was to win the fight and he how can i put this he looks really good because he prepares like a professional throughout GSP's career, especially recently towards the end. He was working on his game. He understood he was losing a step. He understood he wasn't as dominant as he used to be. So he started shoring up all the holes in his game, all the different skill sets so that he'd be prepared when he came back. And that was the difference. GSP had an answer for every sort of circumstance he could be in. Michael Bisping did not. So when GSP wasn't as fast as he used to be, he knew how to handle it. When he got tired, he knew how to handle that. When Bisping put some pressure on him, he knew how to handle that. When he was getting beat up from the bottom, he knew how to handle that. Because the way he prepares is in a manner that has an answer for any possible situation you put him in. He's not just going to depend on being tough, being athletic, or being, or being uh, a cardio machine. He's actually going to go based off actual skills. So looking at how well he performed uh, across this fight on Saturday, what do you think's next for GSP? Do you think he stays at this weight class? Do you think he goes back to 170? Um, I was even listening to him talk about going down to 155. What do you think he goes and in, in what's next for him? Well, according to the contract, he's legally bound, if he's going to fight, to fight Whitaker next. I don't know if that's the best fit for him because even though, even though GSP is truly prepared in the best ways possible and he's a true technician and he's a true strategist, the fact of the matter is there's still limitations to what he can do. And Whitaker's a big middleweight. And Whitaker is a guy who hits really hard. Bisping's never been a big power puncher. Bisping's not really, he's never been an elite athlete. Whitaker is an elite athlete with real size and real power. I don't know that even with all his strategy and his seasoning, that he can put Whitaker in a position where he could actually defeat him. He'd have to convince me that A, he could hurt Whitaker, and B, that he could handle Whitaker's power when Whitaker hits him back. So just from a matchup point of view, it's a really bad fight. And we've seen George get beat up We've rarely seen George really, like, really get hurt or really get knocked out. And I don't know that he wants to leave on that note. I would think the best fight for him would be facing Conor McGregor, to be quite honest. That would be the smartest and best route to go if he's thinking about making a legacy and making the best money. Because Conor McGregor, he's the crossover star. He's the big superstar. He's like the new GSP. And if he beats him, even if it's not the biggest win as far as a technical aspect, it's a big win as far as name and notoriety. It's the kind of win that essentially puts him in the books across across different sports, not just in 
MMA, but every sort of combat sport. That's the kind of fight that might break the Floyd Conor McGregor record. That's the kind of fight that was going to be remembered in popular culture, not just MMA culture. And anybody who really pays attention to popular culture knows there's a difference between what's popular in MMA and what's popular among the world and other people out who, who, who don't who aren't hardcore stands for the MMA. And I wrote about what's next for him uh, earlier this week when I think he is, I mean, in my opinion, I think that the next fight should be against Connor. It's it's a money fight. Yeah, it screws up two divisions and it really throws a lot of things out of whack for um, middleweight and lightweight. Can you turn me down a little more? I can still hear myself on your end. Yeah, go ahead. Um, it still, yeah, still throws off a lot of things for both sides of the um, divisions with middleweight and lightweight, but the UFC is about making money. I mean, they are certainly about making money, and while it's unfortunate that this fight, if it did happen, if, there's no way they could probably get a deal done by um, that December 30th card, which is still looking for a main event. But, I, man, if it was me, I, this is how I, I would start off. 2018 set the pace with a big fight between the two biggest stars in, in the sport right now and just get it going from from the jump i don't think i think um that would be the move that they make i couldn't see them putting him against willie i couldn't see them putting him against whitaker i think those are two guys that he clearly doesn't want to fight because he sees the danger that both of them pose and i think that that's a fight that both of them would win i mean you don't really have too many other options to go outside of that well, the biggest problem I have with the, the MMA purists who are like, well, he has to defend the belt. The thing about it, and we've had this discussion before, a, a discussion that most podcasts don't have. There is the actual sporting aspect of it. But to keep the sporting aspect going, you have to have stars. You have to have what they call tent pole events that you can use to push the company forward and to sustain the company when they're not making the most money they're making, they, they need to make. They're not making as much. GSP versus Conor McGregor helps helps do that. I understand Whitaker's position. He wants the belt, but let's face it. Um, him fighting GSP, that's because GSP is a money fight. Tyron Woodley, as much as he talks about being an honorable champion, the fact of the matter is they had to make him fight Thompson. They had to make him fight Maya. As soon as he won the belt, who was he calling for? GSP, Nick Diaz, Nate Diaz, Conor McGregor. He wasn't trying to defend it against the next ranked welterweight. He wanted the guy who's going to bring him the payday. And the fighters take that into consideration when thinking about their own careers, but they don't take that into consideration when they're talking about the financial well-being of the company. The company needs to be make money. The company has had, not had a very good year. They haven't had a bunch of sellouts. They haven't even had a lot of memorable cards. So they need to make money. They need to make money. They need to be away from scandal. They need to have some positive headlines that give them some momentum going into the next the, the oncoming years gsp versus conor mcgregor does that gsp versus woodley is great for woodley it's not it's not that good for gsp not that good for ufc gsp versus whitaker great for whitaker not that good for gsp not that good for the ufc so when you look outside the box and you think about what benefits the sport as a whole because money's needed we can talk about being honorable honest competition but you can't have any of that unless you have money what makes the most money? What keeps the sport going? What keeps the lights on? It's the circus show. It's the circus fight. It's the crossover media fight, not the athletically funded, balanced, ranked fight. Those, those don't make money. And the UFC needs money, and these fighters need money. 
And that's, that's really what's in the best interest of everybody as a whole, not just an individual fighter. Yeah, and, um, you know, like I said, we always say this is a business. And it's crazy that in this business, people forget that it's a business. And but at the same time, you know, that business is usually impacted by what entertainment value fighters bring to the to the stage. And right now, man, there isn't any bigger value than uh, GSP Bisping. I'm assuming uh, GSP McGregor. We see that. Everyone is aware of that. And I would be amazed if UFC isn't even talking about this. I mean, we Dana White said Robert Whitaker is next. There's no questions about that. But how many times have we seen that situation that change? He also said that Floyd Mayweather isn't going to fight Conor McGregor. That happened. He also said that Conor McGregor was going to was going to defend the uh, the featherweight title. That didn't happen. He said Anthony Pettis was going to get a title shot almost ten years ago. That didn't happen. So many different things he said did not occur. So I find it hard to believe yeah, the that big, they aren't talking about getting GSP and Conor McGregor together. I just hate the hypocrisy of it because the fighters always. It's like they always forget until it's their turn up. You know what I'm saying? Like Woodley wanted his shot he earned until he got the belt. Now he wants whatever can make the most money. You know, Stephen Thompson was talking about, you know, Woodley should have to defend. We should just fight. You should fight all comers. But now that Stephen Thompson's in a power position, he doesn't want to fight all comers. He wants to protect his position so he can get back to the title. Demetrius Johnson says he just wants his props. You already get your props. What you want is to get paid for the level of skill you showcase and the dominance you showcase. It always comes down to money, and the only time they say it's not about the money is when it's they're not about the money. make money. Exactly. Anytime someone says it's not about the money, it's always about the money. Yep. Oh, no, I just I would do this for free. No, you wouldn't. Because if that's the case, why are you crying about the fact that your kid can't go to school they want to because you don't get paid enough by the UFC? <laughs> but I just said you do it for free. Why are you crying? Uh-huh, uh-huh. They um, be honest about it. Everybody sells the, I'm a warrior, it's not a sport, it's a blood sport, until it comes time to get paid. Then everybody's like, I'm a pro athlete, just like LeBron. Warrior. Which one is it? There's, there's, there's a difference. You have to admit that it's a business, and a lot of the athletes, the reason they catch so much flack from the fans is because they keep downplaying the fact that it is a business. And that's where the fans kind of get confused, like, okay, yesterday was a business, now you're a warrior. Yesterday's about money, now it's about honor. Which one is it? And every fighter, once they get in a position of power, Starts flip flopping. You, I'm sure you noticed it. Yep. So let's one before we move on to talk about the next the other title fights. What do you what do you thoughts the next for Michael Bisbing? Do do we see him maybe take one more big fight? What could that big fight be for him at this point in time, or does he uh, decide to fade away from from the sport? Honestly, with Bisping, given given Bisping's history his lack of athletic talent and the accomplishments he's had in his career. I don't see really the point of him t- trying to take on any rank contender. He should just do like fun fights or exciting fights, you know, like maybe fight Machida or fight Weidman. I don't really see the point of him trying to move up and fight for a title again. He's already gotten the title. He defended it, which a lot of UFC champions have never done. He got the big money fight with GSP. He made a good account of himself. He's overcome all his physical limitations and he has, he has a, a reputation as being a clean athlete who took on the best of the best and has fought the most time in the UFC, and he was a grinder. He got the most out of his talent. Like, what else is there for him? I don't really think he's in the position for a title run, coming off all the injuries and all the mileage on him from all the fights he's been in. 
it, it just seems there's no purpose. He's already, an, he's already an analyst for the UFC. What's the purpose of continuing fighting unless it's just what you want to do? But if that's what you're going to do, just take fun fights. Stay away from Whitaker. Stay away from Romero. Fight Machitas, the Weidmans, the Gasolums, maybe Silva again, and then call it a day and move on with your career. Mm-hmm. Definitely call it a day and move on. And what do you think his place is? Um... Do you what do you what, where do you see him? Uh, I was listening to uh, Luke Thomas today, and he was being asked that question. I definitely see him as I mean, do you even see him as the best English fighter of all time? I think he's the most influential for sure. Um, is he overrated? Uh, I'm not going to call him overrated per se. I'm not going to go that far. But what are your thoughts on Michael Bisbee's career as a whole? If he was to call it quits after this fight. You can't call him overrated because nobody, to be quite honest, even at his peak, nobody considered Mike a top-end talent, nor did they really consider him a top-end fighter. He was a guy who was ranked high because he beat the elite. Throughout his career, what was the knock on him? He was like Donald Cerrone. He could never beat the name guys. He lost to Chael Sonnen. And it might have been when he was on drugs or whatever, the fact of the matter, he lost. Lost to Sonnen, lost to Belfort, lost to Henderson. He was never able to get the big win. Lost to Tim Kennedy. Then he'd find some way to lose. Lost to Luke Rockhold. He didn't have his first name win until he beat Anderson Silva. And then he followed it up by beating Luke Rockhold. Those are really the only two names he's ever beaten his entire career, to be quite honest. So he's never really an elite guy in the true sense of elite. He was known as a guy who was an overachiever, who was a guy who didn't have top-end world-class athletic talent, but got the most out of everything he had in his body. He made improvements, he pushed himself, and most of all, he persevered. He's the guy who got further along than he should have based on talent. Based on talent, he should have been maybe a top 15, top 20 fighter. But through perseverance, never giving up, and always believing in himself, he was able to reach the pinnacle, which is being a champion and actually successfully defend his belt at least once as a champion. Even though it was against an old Dan Henderson, the fact of the matter is, he still got the job done. So in my opinion, he's going to be looked at as the most influential English fighter because he's the first guy to open the floodgates. He was a, t- a tough winner, world champion. I mean, there there is some, from a certain perspective, you could say he's a Hall of Famer because of where he came from, his consistent success, how many fights he's had, how many people he's beat, the fact that he won tough when it was really, really a, a newer show and it was still considered a farm for talent and he won a middleweight championship. So based off ev- all those things together, he could be a, he could be a Hall of Famer. But based off of pure athletic ability and who he beat, I wouldn't say that he, he'd be a Hall of Famer because he didn't beat enough elite guys. But based on his impact and how far he's reached across the MMA community as far as he's been an announcer, he's been a fighter, he's been a champion, he's been a spokesman, he's been a guy who helped build, build the sport in his country, put all that together, he's a Hall of Famer very true um i definitely do I, I do think he's a hall of famer especially with the ambiguity that is in place to even become a hall, a hall of famer i'm not going to argue that point at all i think it'll be interesting to see what's next for him because i don't even see i don't see a fight that's that valuable for him at this point in time like what do they do with him i don't see anything that really kind of captures anybody's attention at this point in time but yeah he is he's I definitely think about his page his um, wallet yeah where, where, where else is he going to make GSP money? There's not. no one else who... No one. No one else. So, let's go from there, and let's segue into talking about the co-main event, where... 
TJ Dillashaw came back from being knocked down in the first round and basically, I don't want to say shocked the world, not shocked the world, no, that's not the right term, but he cleaned out uh, Cody Garbrandt and got a big win, taking away the bantamweight title from Team Alpha Male. What are your thoughts on this fight there and what did you really see uh, in the first round and what shifted in the second round for DJ uh, TJ to get that win? And the before you start, thing, before you start, excuse me, turn, turn me down just a little bit more on you. I can still hear myself. I can still hear the actual echo. All right. All right, go ahead. Yeah. When I first heard about this fight, I really thought it was a clean win for Cody. The biggest impact, the biggest question I had was what happens if Cody gets clipped? He's been knocked out as an amateur, and he was not cold. I saw him get rocked against Dominic. So I was like, there's a chance TJ can catch him. TJ's tough, TJ's durable, TJ is a very busy fighter, he throws a lot of volume, he throws a lot of variety. There's a chance that at some point TJ catches him, and if his chin isn't up to the task, he's gonna he's gonna get stopped. And nobody had really tested his chin prior. He was kind he comes out aggressive, he counterpunch you, and when he hit guys, guys were just going to sleep. He really wasn't taking a lot of clean shots. If you watch the majority of his fights in UFC, he was pretty much smoking guys. He wasn't really taking a lot of abuse. He wasn't taking a lot of punishment. Nobody really knew how much he could really take. We knew TJ could take abuse. We knew TJ. He took some big shots from Burrell, from Joe Soto, from Essential, from Cruz. We've seen TJ more or less show, show a dependable chin. So my question, my biggest question was, when and if he gets cracked, what's going to happen to Cody Garbrandt? Because the biggest advantage he has is that athleticism and that, that natural power. He's such a bigger hitter than TJ Dillashaw. It's hard to overcome his athletic ability. And in the first round, that's what you saw. You saw his boxing background. You saw his footwork. You saw how quick his feet were, how quick his hands were, and how explosive he was. Because TJ couldn't find the range on him. He was moving in and out of range very quickly. He was countering TJ. And when he was countering, he was throwing heavy leather. And TJ was just, TJ couldn't find the range. TJ couldn't get into a rhythm. TJ couldn't crowd him. TJ couldn't bait him in for counters. He couldn't do anything with him. And all and all Cody was doing was circling, stepping around him, creating angles, countering with the 2-3 or the 3-2, and occasionally throwing out his jab. What happened, and when he dropped him, he hit him on the counter. But the thing about it is, in the second round, and you, I don't know if you've heard the uh, the audio, they had the audio from the corner with Ludwig and TJ Dillashaw. The first thing Ludwig said was, you need to pressure him. He doesn't like pressure, pressure him. And that's the, that's the biggest difference. He decided, I'm going to bite down. I'm going to have to walk through some fire, but I'm going to put this pressure on him and put him in positions where he feels like he has to fire back or make him get into a position where he feels he needs to come at me to create space or he needs to walk me down and put some heat on me to back me off. And once, once Garbrandt got into the position where he's going to start bobbing and weaving, coming in and getting into exchanges with Dillashaw, that's where essentially he lost the fight. A lot of people will point to the kicks. The kicks were a big factor, but the thing that cost Garbrandt the fight was that Garbrandt got into exchanges with Dillashaw. Dillashaw, even though he had the power to finish Dillashaw, the fact of the matter is Dillashaw has a legitimate chin. He was never going to go out just from one clean shot. There was too much bad blood. Dillashaw is too good an athlete. He recovers too quickly, and his chin is too good. What Garbrandt should have been doing is moving in and out, Stepping around Dillashaw, landing his shots, and getting in and getting out. He's got the faster hands. He's got the sharper hands, at least if you go shot for shot. But when you start getting into those extended exchanges, his defense starts getting a little wide. His offense starts getting a little wide. And when you're throwing wide and you're throwing hard and you're standing in front of a guy who's throwing tight, 
throwing a lot of shots and throwing tight shots, that's a recipe for disaster. And that's what happened. He got they were both were throwing hooks. TJ landed clean, and that was it. The fight was the fight was done from that point on. And in my opinion, it was a matter of him allowing the pressure that TJ was putting on him to get to him and deciding he needed to impose his will on TJ and take the fight in the fight in the second round. If I recall correctly, in the fight, he said, you're not making it out of this round. And there was no need for that. TJ didn't have the foot speed. TJ didn't have the footwork to consistently get in, control him, or to pressure him. If Garbrandt just would have worked the angles, stepped around him, come in and out on angles, I don't believe that TJ ever would have had a chance to get an exchange with him. The only reason that exchange happened is because Garbrandt was looking for the knockout and was willing to engage in the exchange. And when you don't, when you don't have a world-class chin, you don't necessarily want to engage in exchanges, especially when you're facing a guy who has a world-class chin. So, and it's funny that you mentioned that counter that he dropped uh, Cody with. That was the same punch that he landed in that video. So, I mean, you saw it there. Everyone saw it. That's kind of like the first thing everybody knows. Like, damn, that was the same exact punch, same exact uh, situation that he landed at, that he landed at and dropped him. So, I mean, that kind of caught us off guard. And I thought it was going to be all downhill from there. Well, if you remember when they first talked about the video, they always said, well, I knocked TJ out. Then you see the video, you saw that he dropped him. So essentially, history repeated itself. He dropped TJ, and TJ was able to continue to fight. And only in this case, TJ was able to turn the fight around and get that knockout. I think I think a lot of the case was Garron and Team Alpha Male figured, we know TJ. We know how he is. We know he, how he's going to react. We know his temperament. And that may be true. I'm not going to deny that. It's clearly true, but that works in reverse, too. Garbrandt knows how you are. He knows what, what strikes a nerve with you. He knows where your limitations are. And the thing about Dillashaw is Dillashaw's been training with Ludwig. He's gone to different camps. He's been training with a bunch of different fighters. He's been expanding his skill set. He, Even though he's a, a very aggressive guy who likes to go to war, he's a very cerebral fighter. That's why him and D Dwayne Love would get, get along together because they're very cerebral. They're very thoughtful. They look at numbers. They look at situations. They look at theoretic concepts all related to combat. Dillashaw, Garbrandt's a little bit more straightforward. He's more of a, I'm going to come do what I'm going to do. I'm a fighter. That's going to be a difference. I'm going to outfight you. I'm going to outscrap you. I'm going to knock you out. I'm a better athlete. I'm a better fighter. I'm a savage. I'm going to do that. Ludwig and Dillashaw, in my opinion, had a better idea of what Garbrandt can do and what he couldn't do. And during the time that, Gar that Dillashaw's been out of the camp, Garbrandt hasn't been forced to show a lot more than what he's already showed to us before. Now, none of us knew, most of us knew, didn't know that he could box the way he boxed, and he would outbox Dominic Cruz. T.J. Dillashaw had gone tons of rounds with him. He'd seen him spar a bunch of times. He knew what Garbrandt could do as far as his footwork. He knew what he could do as far as his punches. He, he knew where all the holes were, and he exploited them because Garbrandt doesn't have the chin necessary to get him out of trouble when he gets himself in trouble, and he hadn't rectified certain key things in his game plan that would expose his chin. You know, one thing, I'll give you an example, he has a great jab. Every time he threw the jab, he landed on TJ. He could have controlled TJ with that jab. He could have fainted with a jab, come over with the right hand. He could have fainted with a jab, jumped in with a leap and left hook. But he never established his jab, he just flicked it out occasionally. How do you have that good a jab and you don't learn how to use it and diversify it? How do you not keep a jab on somebody who's got that many tools and th throws that much volume? The jab alone disrupts you. It keeps you out of the range you want to be in. It breaks up your rhythm. Even if you're not landing to the face, jab to the chest. That throws off kicking range. That throws off the setups. That throws off the angles. That throws off everything. Jab into the body. Come over the top. 
Garbrandt has a beautiful jab. He did not consistently use it at all in that fight. And it, that's another thing that cost him. But while Gar, while Dillashaw was refining his game and growing as a martial artist, Garbrandt was essentially the same guy he was before. So he didn't have anything new for Dillashaw. He didn't do anything that Dillashaw wasn't expecting. He, he in fact, made it easier because the minute Dillashaw pressured him, he started pushing back. And he didn't have to do that. He should have kept letting TJ pressure, move around the cage, let TJ walk into a shot, just the same way he did in the first round. Let him walk into a shot. Historically, TJ's defense is awful. Everybody who fights him rocks them. Everybody who fights him lands clean and hard shots on him. All you have to do is show some patience, be deliberate in what you're doing, control the distance, and he will walk into power shots all night long. You just have to be patient enough, and he'll give you something. But Garbrandt couldn't control himself. He didn't like the pressure. Well, let me let me get back on him. Let me push him back. Not push him back with feints. Let me come in there and start swinging. Wide. And he got counter. Plain and simple. So TJ, just like he knew TJ, TJ knew him. The only difference is TJ added a couple more layers to his game, a little bit more precision, and Garbrandt was essentially the same guy TJ had been trained with two years ago. So what do you think is next here? I personally, this, and I wrote about this for MMA ratings this week, the outcome of this fight actually makes the DJ versus TJ fight a little bit more compelling in my eyes. Um, the bantamweight division is kind of in a flux, especially with um, the news that Dominic Cruz is out against Jimmy Rivera at UFC 219. So the, the, the division is kind of out of flux. There aren't really any new top contenders available. And the idea of TJ having a belt makes this bout much more intriguing, in my opinion. Would that make you want to watch the fight? Or is that something that you think that should not happen yet and that um, they should be given an opportunity to both get one more fight and kind of build this moment up? Well, the first time they were thinking about having this fight, I, I didn't really I was I was on Team Mighty Mouse because I was like he's right, and then we talked about it on our show. TJ doesn't even have a belt. Like what do you, what do you bring into the table? You lost as a champion. What do you bring into the table? But now that he has a belt, and now that he's coming off a win, a dynamic win, over who people, someone who everybody thought was going to be a dominant champion, that matters. And if you take out the if you take out the loss to Cruz, uh, TJ's on quite the win streak. He's essentially been unstoppable since he's gotten with. Dwayne Ludwig, you could essentially say he's undefeated since he's he uh, signed on with Ludwig. Mm-hmm. But what's most important about this is all the drama that came the first time they were supposed to fight and, and Dana flipped his wig and was thinking about shutting down the flyweight division. There's a storyline there now. I mean, it was all over MMA for like a couple days. He's going to shut down the fly, flyweight division. Demetrius said, shut it down then. I'm not fighting Dillashaw. Dillashaw's talking all sorts of trash. You know, there was a whole storyline built up because of this now. So now this story, now this fight has a storyline. It has a background. It has two guys who seemingly are dominant in their divisions and guys who show that they're clearly far and away the best all-round martial artists in their divisions. How do you not make that fight? And the biggest thing about it is Dana White's going to try to push this fight. As much as Mighty Mouse says, I want the props, I want the heavy promotion i want the heavy rotation from the ufc he's got to give some ground and this is and i saw a quote from dana white that was the most honest quote i've ever seen from him and it's the one time i actually agree with him 100 percent. dana said you can't say i don't care how much you make i don't care how much the organization makes i don't care how much my my opponent makes i don't care how many people come to see the fight i don't care you just give me my money and that's it 
He's like, it doesn't work like that. It's a partnership. If you want $2 million, you've got to give us a $2 million fight. You've got to give us something that we can build around, something that we can promote. You fighting another flyweight doesn't promote anybody's interest because everybody's seen you walk through every single person in that division. Everybody's seen that fight. Everybody just assumes you're going to win. There's no interest in that. But this fight with TJ, that's interesting because he's one of the most dominant Bantamweights ever. He's shown the most diverse skills in the division most dominant in a long Bantam time. Ever. This I is a fight with that. legs. I would argue that. Um, okay. Keep talking for a second. I'm going to argue that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. But um, this fight actually has some legs. And it's this fight that people are interested in because can can Mighty Mouse handle a guy who's a little bit bigger and stronger? Can he handle a guy with comparable athleticism? Can he handle somebody who has the volume, the work rate, and the physical toughness that Dillashaw has? He hasn't faced a guy with those, not just physical skill sets, but the ex- experience at a world-class level. When he fought Henry Cejudo, Henry Cejudo hadn't really fought anybody with any real value. Henry, Cejudo, Henry Cejudo's resume after DJ is better than his resume before DJ. His two fights after DJ were better than any fights he had prior to fighting for the title. So he didn't really get any real experience or seasoning until after he fought DJ. When DJ fought Horiguchi, Horiguchi had world-class talent and skills, but Horiguchi had never gone five. He had no real experience against world-class opposition. His resume has gotten better since he's fought in, since he fought and lost to Demetrius. Same thing with everybody Everybody Demetrius Johnson has fought. He's gotten them early in their careers as flyweights. And it, with the exception of Jesse Benavidez, everybody else has faced better competition after they fought DJ than when they fought him before. And if they fought him the second time, they'd probably have a better shot at beating him. Because you said they, some, they've grown as fighters. You said some interesting so things. against TJ, it's a world-class guy with world-class experience. And that makes a difference. So you said some, um, some interesting things. I want to I wanna begin uh, kind of... At- analyzing here because I definitely want to pull some of it apart. First, um, while I am a fan of TJ, why can't I pull up his damn win-loss record? Hold on one second. While I am a fan of TJ here, let's pull up his win-loss record because you said he's one of the most dominant bantamweight champions of all. And I mean, I, I, I wonder... I wonder if that's, I'm not going to say I wonder if that's true, but I wonder if that's true because not only did um, Nick Cruz come to mind first, I mean, obviously, you know, he's he's going to kind of stand across, stand on top of that list regardless of who you are. Another name popped into my mind too as well, and that's Miguel Torres because a lot of people forget about what Miguel Torres did when as a bantamweight and as a bantamweight for the um, WEC for an extended period of time and i wonder if we would rank those two guys ahead of tj at this point in time because tj has only how many times has he defended the title he defended it against he won it against hennon and he defended it against joe soto and hennon Burrell before losing it back to dominic cruz so do those do those two fights have that much weight to you well, the, the the reason the reason the fight when he lost the when he the main thing with when he lost the Cruz is some people most people a lot of people I'm not one of them thought that he beat Cruz. It was that tight a fight. Mm-hmm. During his bantamweight time, the only other fight he really lost, I think he lost the fight to Asuncio once he got with with Ludwig. Essentially, if he didn't lose the fight to Ludwig and the Cruz, he'd be on like what an 11, 12 fight win streak. 
No, because he got stopped by John Dotson. Controversial losses. He got um. So if he didn't lose to John to Dotson, so let me see. One, two, three, four. If he didn't lose to Sun Sal, he'd be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Yeah. So if he would have defeated, if he never would have lost to John Dotson, he would be on a thirteen fight win streak right now. And I also want to talk about what you said about um, DJ's never faced anyone with the skill set that TJ has. I think he has, but it's kind of it for. I, I think he's faced it. He hasn't faced one person that's had that skill set. He's faced iterations of it in different ways. Um, he's faced high level grapplers, high level wrestlers. He's faced high level grapplers. He's faced high level strikers across the board. I think someone that might be the closest. Um, amalgamation of all of that would be Joseph Benavidez, but he had, I mean, you know, he has wins over Kid Yamamoto. He has wins over Miguel Torres. He has those two over Joseph Benavidez. He has two over John Dotson. He has one over Ian McCall as well. And they had that other close fight as well. Like there's a lot, he, he has defeated a lot of big names, guys who have had success at flyweight and at bantamweight. So I, I think it's, I think we, are kind of undercutting his opponents. Yeah, he has faced some guys like like Chris Carriasso, who you might want to question. Maybe a Tim Elliott, who you might want to question. I understand those, but he has faced some names on his resume. Well, it's not that it's not that he has never faced names, but Demetrius Johnson didn't become the most dominant champion or dominant fighter until he came to flyweight, and weight, but not not a world championship level bantamweight. He became the Demetrius Johnson we know now at flyweight. And at flyweight, it's been years since he's really faced a guy with any world-class experience. All the guys he's faced were kind of brought to him early because he was beating everybody so badly. There was nobody else to put him through. He was there when the division started, when it was super thin. I mean, he's fighting John Moraga and Chris Carriasso. And everybody who, when he fought Horiguchi, people were like, Horiguchi needs at least two or three more fights. He's not ready. Yeah, I I will... um... Agree with that. I think that Horiguchi fight was a little bit too early for him. Yeah, Cejudo. I mean, Cejudo. Like I said before, Cejudo beat better guys after he lost to DJ than anybody he beat before. That. Nobody he fought before before he fought DJ prepared him at all. He was just an athletic talent with an Olympic pedigree, and people said, "Okay, that's enough." Against TJ, he's fighting a guy who's a multiple-time world champion, a guy who's beaten almost everybody at his division who's still relevant, and a guy who's at the peak of his powers. It's the only fight that people might say, well, what might happen now? Because nobody has any confidence that any flyweight is going to give TJ anything more than a tough go. I mean, the best, the most competitive fight we've seen from Mighty Mouse in the past three or four years was against Tim Elliott. And after the first round, that was really essentially uh, a beating. He just beat him up from that point on. I mean, Elliott made it interesting, but it was never really competitive. I mean, there's a lot of storylines in this fight. Can TJ make the weight? Now there's bad blood. TJ seems to be the big dog in Bantamweight by far. Doesn't seem anybody on his skill level or his level of athleticism. It, it's the only fight that Dana White seems interested in really promoting and really pushing. It really comes down to how badly does DJ, does DJ want to be pushed? How badly does he want that top promotional spot? And how badly does he want the machine behind him? Because Dana White is making it clear, if you want the machine behind you, you give us a, 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 way to, a matchup that we want. We want TJ versus DJ, so he can either give it to him and get the get the push he wants, or he can say, "Well, he needs to fight a flyweight and all this other stuff." And 
be relegated right back to where he started, where he's not getting he's not getting the push, he's not getting the big money. But Dana White's clearly stated what he needs to do to get big money. And even though Dillashaw's not a big star, it's a fight that generates interest. And when's the last time DJ's had a fight where you're like, man, I don't know how this could go? It's been years. It's been yeah, like I, four years since you've been actually interested in how a fight with Mighty Mouse might go. I'm not going to disagree with you at all on that. Like, I, that this this is the most interesting Mighty Mouse fight that's available right now. I, I just, I, I'm, I'm looking for, hoping it does occur. So we can kind of get some analysis and see what's going on, like what really goes on in this fight. Because, I mean, yeah, I I, I would gladly want to sit down and watch these two. It would be a technical masterpiece. I mean, who I mean, who else would you rather see DJ fight at this point? Would flyweight? Would you rather see him fight over TJ? None. None. There you go. You got to give the fans what they want. So, in in reference of giving the fans what they want, I mean. We saw another finish with Rose Namajunas stopping Yoranya uh, and Jacek in the first round of their fight by a left hook as well, and then and then finishing her off to uh, strikes. Um, there's a couple of different things I want to talk about when it comes to this fight here. First and foremost, from a technical standpoint, what did you see that was bothering Yon Jacek early in this fight? Because she was struggling from the very start. And I know she's a slow starter, which she's always has been, and I think that Rose capitalized on that, but something seemed off. I, I have a theory that she's actually been having problems making weight for the past couple of camps. I really believe that, to me, physically, she hasn't always looked good. Like, even back when she fought Gedalia, her last time she fought her, I was telling people, I'm like, how many more times can she fight this kind of tough a fight and everybody's like well she didn't take a lot of punishment i'm like she looks ragged to me she looks ragged and she looks exhausted physically exhausted to me and there's two things one the style of fight she has that's it's a combination of being a volume fighter and a grinder people with that style whether it's a running back a basketball player a boxer or an mma fighter those those styles don't age well because they put so much mileage on you because there's so much activity for you to even compete with that style, you have to train at a certain level, at a certain intensity, for you to even a- attempt to use that kind of volume in a fight. And use all the pivots and movements and feints that she uses and the range of strikes she uses. You know what kind of shape you have to be in even before you get in the octagon to do that? That that's, that's not easy. You're breaking down your body on a regular basis so you can perform like that. Second of all, and this is this is, this is particularly troublesome for her, if you look at her record, she's fought a lot in the UFC. There's like, I think there's like three or four of her, fight, her title fights have gone five rounds. With Letourneau, it went five rounds. With um, Carolina, it went five rounds. With Gedalia, it went five rounds. With Andrade, it went five rounds. Those are four fights. Just right there, there's 20 rounds. You put the other Gedalia fight in with her, that's three rounds. That's 23. You put in the Lima fight, that's 26 rounds. You put in the Carlos Barza fight, now we're up to 28. You put in the Jessica Pinay, we're almost up to 30, 33, 33 rounds. You put in the Rose fight, that's one round, essentially. Now You're almost up to 40 rounds. Mm-hmm. How many fighters have actually fought almost 40 rounds in, in that few of fights? She doesn't have a lot of finishes. She doesn't have any submission finishes, which means she's spending all this time thinking, throwing punches, kicks, elbows, knees, fighting in the clinch, grappling in the clinch, moving all around the cage. That's a lot of time in the cage. That's a lot of mileage in the cage. And if you're having problems making weight, which I think she is, that doesn't do that doesn't do your body any favors. That pushes your body way past the limit, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh-huh. And 
you're saying a lot of things that have been said throughout the week, um, and even before this fight, wondering just how much damage Joanna has taken. And I mean, she yeah, she just looked off, so 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 off, in um, from the very start of this fight. Looking at how the, it ended, would you give her an immediate title shot? And if not, what would you do with Rose Namajunas next? With I don't know if. if... Joanna herself should take a title shot. I've said this before, and it's going to seem particularly cruel, but the fact of the matter is she didn't get knocked out cold or choked out cold. To me, that does not make her less of a fighter. It doesn't make her a coward. It doesn't make her any of those things. But it doesn't change the fact that you're a person who talks a certain kind of way. Like, she told Rose, I'm going to break you. Your, your coach is a bitch. You're a coward. She tells people she's, she's the boogie woman. She's going to make everybody pay. Let's say she has a rematch with Rose right away. She says again, I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to, make, I'm going to break you. In Rose's mind, the, her confidence has got to be sky high because you said the same thing before. And the minute it got tough, you didn't just get knocked out. You tapped out. And we've seen Rose take beatings before. Rose didn't tap out from strikes. We've seen Michelle Watterson get in beaten from pillar to post by Rose Namajunas. She didn't tap out. We saw Paige Van Zandt getting beat up, getting beat up on the feet by Rose Namajunas. She took it. There's a lot of fighters who've taken worse beatings. Look at what Andrade did to, to Claudia in that last fight. Did Claudia tap out? No. no. This is it. I, I think when you tap out into circumstances like this, it can really have an effect on you mentally. It's one thing to get your lights put out. It's another thing to say that not that you didn't want it anymore. When you get knocked out, your body can't take it anymore. When you get tap out from strikes, you're just saying you don't want it anymore. And that's the first time she's actually been in a position where she had to take extended extensive abuse so that makes you wonder where's her mind at where is she at mentally i mean maybe it was just an off night and she'll be right back to go or if she gets dropped with the same shot again puts in the same circumstance maybe she doesn't tap maybe she just gives up you know there's ways of giving up without actually giving up and i'm not saying this is an indictment on her but the fact of the matter is in the tough spot she's been in in her career she, she found a way out. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. I like a self-aware fighter, but that doesn't change the facts. I'm not going to argue that. not going to argue that at all. Um, oh, yeah, and just one more thing. When this fight first came out, I really thought Rose was going to knock her down and then choke her out. But if you remember, when we had when we had um, Trevor on the show, I said the biggest thing, I think Rose is the biggest threat to her, and I've said this before on our show, because she can do orthodox stuff, and she can do dynamic stuff. She's that good an athlete, and she has that range of skills. She's a finisher from almost any position on the floor, on the floor or on the feet. And there's very few people who have the combination of size, strength, body control, and explosiveness she has. Explosiveness she has. She's been training with Valentina for a reason. There's a certain gap when you train with, when you fight a world-class fighter, a world-class grappler, that you can't replicate just, unless you're working with, with people of an equal or superior caliber got her ready for that caliber. She worked with Valentina before Nunez in the second Nunez fight, and she worked with her before Watterson, and then she worked with her, I think, again. So it's like almost, what, a year and a half's worth of work with a world-class striker, and yes, she doesn't throw as much volume as Joanna, but she's a sharper counterpuncher, and and based off what we've seen, Valentina takes a better shot than Joanna. So she's thinking, if I can get to Valentina and I can back her up, what could I do to Joanna? If I can score and get away without getting countered by Valentina, Joanna's not going to touch me because a lot of Joanna's work is positioning and volume. 
and putting pressure on you and ma- making you hesitate because you know if you miss a shot or you throw a strike, she's going to come back with 15 or 14 shots and tear you up. But when you work with world-class people, that advantage is gone. There's no adjustment period. She's prepared to deal with whatever Joanna has because she's been working with someone of comparable skill, comparable experience, and comparable physical ability. Joanna, on the other hand, hasn't faced a person who's willing to just strike with her in years. The last person who really wanted to bang it out with her was Valerie Letourneau. Letourneau's not half the striker that Noma Yunus is. She's not one-tenth the athlete. And she put she put a lot of leather on Joanna. Joanna didn't walk out of that fight unscathed. So for the first time in a long time, she was facing somebody who was willing and able to exchange with her and someone who had the length and physicality and athleticism to make her pay, where she had to adjust to it. And it's kind of like the Jose Aldo thing. Jose Aldo's knocking out all these wrestlers who try to strike, grapplers who try to strike. The first time he faces somebody who's willing to strike with him, what happened to Jose Aldo? He got starched by McGregor. He got starched by Max Holloway. The two times she's really faced people who were willing to exchange with her, she got touched up by Letourneau, who went five rounds with her, and then she got blown out by Nama Yunus. I mean, when you haven't had to deal with that in years and years and years, you kind of get away from doing the things that you need to do to counter those things because you're not used to them. No matter how much experience you have, if you haven't prepared for them recently, you don't know how to deal with it. It's the same thing when GSP out-wrestled Koscheck. Koscheck's like, I don't need to wrestle. I'm a better wrestler than this guy. And what happened? He got out-wrestled. Uh-huh. I guarantee you, Joanna thought she had Rose's number on the feet. She thought Rose would be scared. The first time she put some heat on her, Rose would look for a takedown. Rose wasn't having it. And I told you before, she's going to try her on the feet. And she did. And when she did, Joanna didn't have anything for her. Her defense wasn't good enough. Her footwork wasn't good enough. And that length and that athleticism was giving her all sorts of problems. She couldn't find the range because she wasn't used to having to deal with a person who had range and would take advantage of that range against her. And those problems don't go away in a rematch. Just because she wants a rematch, a rematch three months from now, I don't know if she can fix all those problems in three months. Yeah, those problems just don't go away. I, I really don't. Yeah, quickly. Um, that's There's two different things. There's two different angles I, w- I want to talk about um, here. First, I want to talk about Rose. Who do you pit against her next? Um, I'm looking at, at, at the division, and... We have the fight coming up with Michelle Watterson and Tisha Torres. I think the number one contender is going to come out of that fight there, um, especially if Michelle wins and she wins it in uh, dramatic fashion. They could, they could, they could. Pit, I mean, they'll pitch that rematch between the two, um, even though it ended in such a that one dominant, one-sided fashion. If not there, where else do you see a contender coming out? Do you go with Jessica Andrade? Do you go with Carolina Kowalskiewicz, two women who have recent wins over the current champion? Do you go there, or do you hope that Watterson gets gets the win and comes out on top? Well, Watterson or Torres would be a good fight because Watterson, well, first, Torres has fought Namina's twice. That's what I say. Tor- Torres won has won. In, in a split, right? Yeah, so that's the almost even, even yeah. better. So so it could, be a, it could be a rubber match. It could be a rubber match. And that, that would have a storyline. Of course, the Watterson fight, it, they could probably make that because Watterson's somebody they clearly want to push. I would think Andrade has the, in, has the inside lane. She's got the best win. Carolina beat um, Jody Escabel. And while I'm a big Jody Escabel fan, Jody Escabel is world-ranked at Adam weight. She's not a real strawweight, in my opinion. She's a good fighter, and she's good enough to beat some strawweights. But when she fought... Kovacavich, she got, she got, I'm sorry, she got dominated. She got dominated, she got beaten up. The same Kovacavich who couldn't even get out of a round against Claudia, who just get, got the worst loss of her life. Andrade's got the be- best win, got the best win in division, because Claudia was the clear number two in the division behind Joanna. 
and Draj won the fight and won it going away. So she's got the best win. She's probably got the best argument to get a fight with Nama Yunus. If anything else, it, whoever wins between Waterston and, and Torres might have to fight Andrade, and then that person gets a title fight. Or you could have Andrade fight Kovalkiewicz, but I don't, think, I don't think Carolina can beat Andrade either. They're essentially the same fighter, except one hits really hard and is a really good grappler, and one is less of an athlete and isn't as good as a grappler and isn't, doesn't have the uh, physical, physical strength that Andrade has. So as far as the matchup or the most deserving person, I have to give it to Andrade. I mean, she's actually beaten a fairly high level of competitor in the UFC. She's got a, she's got a better resume than Watterson. She's got a better resume than Torres, than, than Carolina. The only thing Carolina has is a win over um, Rose, but even that win was a split decision. It wasn't like it was some dominating win. It, it was really it was really tight a tight decision. That fight could have gone to Rose easily. So I, I would say Andrade has the has the inside track. And that will be, in my opinion, be kind of a tough matchup for Rose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would like that f- to see that fight, too. And it's amazing how how, how Andrade's career has changed in recent years. I think that she would be the... I think she's the next um, individual that could be a champion as well, too. So, like, let's let's see what they, what they decide. This is why I thought Claudia shouldn't have taken that fight with Andrade. I thought she should have taken another fight or just waited. Just coming off the the Carolina win, that put it in prime position. And Drage needed a win over Claudia to stay in the title mix. No other win would give her. Claudia already had the work done. She'd been the only person who had really tested Joanna, so she was set. If I was her, I just would have waited out because I really believe Rose would beat her. And if she would have just sat out, now she's facing Rose. She's she she's got the inside track. Yeah, so that I, win over I, Claudia I that. gives Andrade the advantage. I could see that. Had, had she taken, had, had she um, waited? She had to wait. She had the name. She had, she, had, she had the toughest fights with her. She had been undefeated outside of Joanna in the division. She didn't have to do nothing. She beat Carolina. I'm just sitting and waiting. Sitting and waiting for my shot. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with that because that, cause that would have been, a, um, that been a, a pretty big fight for her. Um, Joanna, though, do we see her move up to 125? Because, you I know. Really- I think she should. She's been mentioning it for years. She's like, if they would have had a division, I would have moved up. She's mentioned it before. And then she's, and think about it. She said, I want to break the record. And then I want to move up. To me, why don't you just move up? You're already, and to me, you're already saying that I'm having trouble making this weight. I can't stay this weight forever. Why not just move up? Why, why take that extra fight? Because if she would have just moved up, she wouldn't have fought Rose. She would have left the titles, the most dominant champion in strawweight. Nothing worse than the second best female fighter in UFC history probably could, could have walked into a title shot within maybe one fight or maybe got one automatically. Mm-hmm. But now she moves up. She's at the bottom, back of the line. And even now, she might be in the back of the line. She can't fight for a while. She's going to be out for, what, 60 days when it's a knockout, TKO. So this, this fight's got a while before it can even happen. And you have to ask yourself, does Rose want to wait on her? So if Rose doesn't want to wait on her, she's going to have to fight at least one other contender to get her self back in position to fight for the title and now she doesn't have that that aura of being untouchable and unstoppable anymore they've seen her get rocked and dropped by someone who's not known for being a power puncher i know rose is very dynamic explosive i know she's improved recently under trevor but she's never been known as that kind of that kind of that person and uh and uh if once you see rose do that you know once they see someone else knock you off then everybody gets a little bit braver gets a little bit better 
And that could be the difference between you going on a losing streak and you turning around and getting another title shot. Remember when Anthony Pettis lost his title and he said, I'm just going to take the toughest fight and I'll be right back in the title mix? Didn't work, work out that one very well. He lost like three or four in a row before mm-hmm. he even got a win. Mm-hmm. So you have to be real careful with how a fighter loses and, and how you move them moving moving forward coming off of a devastating loss like that. Hmm. And just one more side note, a lot of people have hit Joanna with that shot. Claudia's hit her with that, and Jessica Andrade hit her with it. So this this left hook she hit, that wasn't something that was anything special. That was something that they could watch tape and see that she, she's available for, especially early before she gets going. So as many people tell me they're so shocked she landed that shot and yada, 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 then you don't watch enough tape. Because if you watch enough tape, you knew that somebody with length and aggression could make her pay with that shot because it's happened routinely. She got dropped by Claudio with that shot. She got caught almost two, two times in a row with that shot by Andrade. So that's not an accident. When that happens and you see that on tape, if you didn't see that, that means you haven't watched enough tape on her. And that's not an insult. It just means that a lot of people were buying into the narrative and not into the, actually what they see on tape. And that, that's where the gap comes between people who really know the sport to pay attention to it and people who just watch it casually or, or, or kind of get a little biased by the talking heads who say, this is a story. Rose can't beat her on the feet. Why can't she? They, watch the tape. There's clear reasons. There, there's clear avenues for victory against her on the feet. First of all, she doesn't move her head. Second of all, she moves off in straight line initially. So you can catch her early. You can catch her early and catch her easily. Everybody does. So to continue building on that, um, I'm sure you saw what occurred with the, the announcement that Paige Van Zandt was supposedly the number one contender for the women's flyweight title. There's been some back and forth about whether that is true by the UFC, but what do you make of that? Because I think Paige is a tough matchup for anyone coming off of the show. You remember, the, the first champion is going to be the individual who wins the show. So I think she would be a tough matchup for anyone coming off of the, the show, um, except for maybe Sarge. I think Sarge would give her a, um, a hard time if, when, the, when the game hits the mat. But is that a play to put Yoana, not Yoana, excuse me, is that a play to put Paige in a position where she can fight someone like a Valentina Shevchenko? I mean, you know, I always stand firmly on the idea that that when it comes to promoting women, women's MMA, the UFC is about looks first. And the idea of a fight between Valentina and, and Paige Van Zandt, you know, that, that probably blew the doors off of Dana White's life. What are your thoughts about what they're trying to do with the flyweight division and what they are what they are attempting to set up in this first um, series of, of fights? Well, in the case of Paige, this is the second time, like, when they had the first t- tough with all the girls and she wasn't allowed in there, she fought, like, three or four girls from that season, and she beat the hell out of all of them. Fleece Herrig, Alex Chambers, Beck Rawling, I think one other person. She, like, beat them all up. And to be honest, in this season, they have a lot of girls who are very inexperienced. Like, they haven't faced world-class. In fact, the people they're fighting in the house are the best people they've ever fought in the entirety of their career. Nobody in the house is better than anybody the page is better than the people that Paige Van Zandt has fought in the UFC. She fought Rose Namajunas, the current champion. She fought her and went, what, four and a half rounds with her? She fought um, Michelle Watterson, former Adam Wade champion. She's fought better competition than almost 85% of the girls. And if she was in the house, I'd almost guarantee she gets to the semifinals, if not the finals. I mean, I, I, re- I really believe that. She's not the most technical person, but she'd still be one of the top 
three athletes in there. And as far as experience, the only people who face better competition or, or face more variety in their competition would be Mataferi and Hanchak. And Hanchak hadn't fought in years. So when somebody tells me that she might have a title fight coming in, I don't think it's fair. But if you actually ask me based on fighting skill and physical ability, if she was in the house, she'd, she'd probably be like, what, top three favorites to win the title in the first place? I mean, if you were just being honest, I, I'd put her in the favorite for the top three. I don't, I don't know too many girls in that house who would beat her. Maybe Sarge, maybe Hanchek, maybe Mataferi. After that, she's even money if not a favorite over anybody. The only problem with it is, is because once again, you're pushing the narrative of having a popular fighter. But once again, as we just discussed this episode, it's about making money. These fighters want to make money. They want to get paid. They want to be promoted. They want to be on the headlining card. How do you do that? You have to have a fight that people care about. And even though Paige isn't a top fighter, people have always cared about who she fights, when she's fighting, and what she's doing. And maybe she's not a star in the true sense of it, but she's more of a star than anybody else in either one of the, in either the other divisions. She's a bigger star than almost anybody in Bantamweight. She's a bigger star than mo almost anybody in Strawweight. She's a bigger star than everybody in Flyweight, and she hasn't even fought in Flyweight yet. As far as name recognition, and getting ratings, she's a bigger star than anybody else they have. So while they're gonna talk about the integrity of the sport, if you wanna get paid, you wanna have eyes on you, what do you do? You fight a name. And unfortunately for Paige, she's a name who's not really world-class in the truest sense. So a lot of girls will take that fight because it'll get you a lot of attention without you having the risk of losing your title because they don't think she's that good in the first place. So um, I'm not gonna fully disagree with you there. I, I think it is, uh key timing and I think it, it I think it sets the it sets the division up in a strong position as well without having to kind of worry about a champion that people may not want to see right yeah, out the gate I mean, no I mean Jack hasn't fought in years and she was never a big star I love Roxanne Mataferi and the way she's grown is amazing actually uh, a high profile either who's the fight who's the fighter who just jumps off the page they don't have a Rose nominee in this season they don't have somebody who everybody's getting behind thinking she could be the next big thing. Who's that person on this season? Nobody. They don't have one. Nobody's talking about somebody like, oh, she could be the next Ronda. She could be, she's, she's going to be the next breakout star. There's nobody on this season who's even a star equal to Fleece Herrick. Fleece Herrick's got a higher uh, um, Q rating than almost than anybody in this division. The, the biggest star, the biggest fight as far as actual name value and person who's fought in the UFC actively would be Paige. And I'm not saying it's fair. I don't really think it's even going to happen. But if it does, I understand why it does. Ranked ahead of Paige who want to fight her. Why do you want to fight Paige Van Sant? She's not the best person in the division, but she's the person who get, has has the most eyes on her. I mean, Michelle Watterson was considered a title contender beating Paige Van Sant. How do you figure? We all know <laughs> Paige isn't a great fighter, so how do you get, get one step from a title fight beating Paige Van Zandt. What sense does that make? I'm not going to argue that, man. I'm not going to argue that, that point there. Um, so, is there anything else on this card that, that, that you want to talk about? You know, we got Steven Thompson getting a big win over Jorge Masvidal. I think probably the biggest thing... Was that this fight card? Yep. Uh, yep. The biggest thing about the Masvidal, not the about the win for Steven Thompson is the way he is rebuffing the idea that he's fighting Darren Till. Hated that response by his um, his dad. The way he says, you know, he is not ready. Till's not basically has to fight some more people. It's it's unfortunate that that they're taking that route, but um, 
but I hope that they find a way to make that fight happen. They're doing the same thing we just talked about. Everybody does. You know, what Woodley needs to face me. We have unfinished business. You got two shots of the title. You got two. And now you're looking to get another one. You got you got to wait for that. You're not just going to get a title shot. And even though Thompson, I like him. I'm a fan of his style. He's not a big name either. If he was, Tyron Woodley would be begging to fight him again. I understand what he's saying. He doesn't want to take a step backwards. But who who else is available for him to fight right now? Lawler's busy. Ponzinibbio's busy. Who's there coming off a win with any sort of heat on him there to fight? I mean, right now, a win over Darren Till is as good as a win over anybody else at this stage, in my opinion. I mean, what's he going to do? Fight Carlos Condit when he gets done with Neil Magny or fight Neil Magny if somehow he wins? What other fight is there for him that's going to push him forward? I mean, I don't really know anything. And I I understand why he's doing it. I just don't like it because it's the same thing every other fighter does. It's the same thing he accused Tyrone Woodley of doing. And now he's doing it. He's trying to pick who he can fight so he can get himself in position for a title fight. His career is not mine, but I can no longer take him seriously when he criticizes other guys for not taking not taking an available fights or not fighting the, the best available challenger at that moment. Because now he's not doing it either. I mean, I'm, like you're not you're not wrong there at all. Uh, is there anything else from this card that stood out? Uh, that stood out to you? Uh, I mean, other than some of the the referee things, not not nothing really. Nothing. I was. I mean, the Joe Duffy loss was a little. It wasn't shocking because I thought it was a chance he could lose. It's just a bad loss loss for Joe Duffy because the UFC did not re-sign him. And I know Vic's getting better. He's a very tough guy. He throws a lot of volume, a lot of variety. He's improving. He's got that huge frame and all that length. But the fact of the matter is that Joe Duffy wasn't resigned to the UFC to lose to guys like James Vick. And he lost, and he lost by stoppage. And he had a chance to either go with Bellator or stick with the UFC, and he resigned with the UFC. And, I, and I'm not saying he regrets it, but a loss like this puts him way in the back of the division because James Vick hasn't really beat any ranked guys yet. So losing to him... It's just a really, really big setback. And it seems like Duffy has a habit of losing to the best guys he's faced. He lost to Dustin Poirier in a one-sided fight. And in a fight, he was dominating Vic in the first round. But essentially, from that, from the end of the first round to the second round, Vic was just really beating him up left and right. About what Duffy has and what opportunities are out there for him. He came with all that hype as the guy who finished Conor McGregor. But since he's been in the UFC, he hasn't been the most impressive fighter. And I can't imagine they re-sign him so that he could lose these kind of fights. They were hoping they could kind of build around him and, and get sort of a thing going and maybe have him be a challenger. But as of yet, um, he he hasn't been worth the money. Not worth the money, huh? Not. I can't imagine. Like I said, they didn't sign him to lose to James Vick. He was, he was supposed to be James Vick, put on a show, move on to the next level. And now he lost, and he lost by stoppage. So he's essentially at the back of, he's essentially at the, back of the line. He's no... He's nowhere close to another ranked opponent. He's nowhere close to being in title talks. And I can't imagine that's what him or the UFC brats had in mind when they brought him in, when they brought him back to the UFC. I'm not going to argue with you there at all, bro. Um, let's look at some of the news from this week. Uh, first and foremost, man, we have two big fights that are now off. As I mentioned already, you know, we talked about... Um, we talked about Dominic Cruz being out of his fight against Jimmy Rivera. Who would you put there and why? Um, I, I had Cruz picked. I, I thought he had the experience. And I thought that 
as one I've seen with, with Rivera, early on he's good. But once you make an adjustment, his ability to be effective, in my opinion, falls off. In almost every fight, the minute the guy makes an adjustment, he has a hard time adjusting to that adjustment. When you're just doing your plan A, maybe even your plan B, he's good because he's scouted that. When you do something against the script or out of the script, he gets lost. And luckily he's been a good enough athlete and a punishing enough fighter that he's done enough work where it hasn't made the difference. But in multiple fights, you've seen a noticeable change late in the fight when somebody starts trying things that they're not typically known for trying, whether it's being more aggressive, counter-punching, throwing, throwing more combinations, attacking the body, whatever it is they do that's not their typical thing, he doesn't have an answer for it. And uh, that's what I thought was going to be the difference, the experience level, the level of opposition and the experience level. So from there, who do you put in that um, fight now? I don't know because Rivera's turned down fights before because he's like, oh, this guy is in a, a, a caliber of guy that I want to face. Dillashaw's not going to face him because he hasn't beaten a name guy in their prime or guy close to their prime. And now there's no, I mean, I guess he could fight, a, he could fight um, the Funk Master, Aljamain Sterling, because Sterling's opponent went out. So maybe they could have Sterling. Who was his original and, um, opponent? I don't remember. Huh? Who was uh, his I forgot, original I forgot who opponent. his opponent was, but he, he dropped out due to oh, injury. Uh, yeah, I need to look and see who his original opponent was. I don't remember. But, you know, because they've had some beef back and forth, and, and Sterling wanted to fight Rivera, but Rivera was saying before when Sterling was on the way up, he, he refused to fight Rivera. So now Rivera might be trying to take another stand, saying, I'm not going to fight this guy. He's not really highly ranked. So there's no real high-ranked guys out there for him to fight right now. Garbrandt's going to be on a break because he came off a loss. Dillashaw ain't fighting Rivera. There's no way that happens. Um, I, I don't really know who else is there out for in the fight if he doesn't fight uh, Aljamain Sterling. That's probably the best fight for him right now. I guess maybe Brian Caraway, maybe? A comparable fight that gets him closer to the belt. Beating Cruz guarantees him a title shot. Beating any of these other guys guarantees him he's another step or two away from the title. Has I don't, I don't know what they do. Caraway fought recently since defeating Sterling. No, he's going to be fighting uh, Luke Sanders, I think. Ah, okay, okay, okay. So, um, there was also another major, um, I guess, dropout in uh, Frankie Edgar is out of the UFC 219 main event. He has a facial injury, and he will not be facing um, Max Holloway now. So there's that. He is saying that he could be he, he could fight again in 12 weeks as opposed to the basically the month that he had for to prepare for this fight. So if you were in charge, do you ask Holloway to wait or do you put in Cup Swanson? Because I see that the movement is being made for Swanson to take that spot. Well, they, they need they need a headliner for that card. And I don't know if they want to scrap that card because Edgar's off of it. I mean... Because if, if you take that fight off it, then essentially you have Cynthia Calvillo versus Carla Esparza is a headlining match. That's a very good fight, but that's not the kind of fight that's going to draw any sort of eyes. And it's not the kind of fight at this point right now that's going to uh, build like Holloway's on, on a roll right now as far as being a star. He's starting to get some acclaim. He put Jose Aldo away. He's talking about Connor, how he's one of the only guys to go the distance with Connor. He's kind of finding his groove and building up his, his brand and getting some momentum. They're trying to continue and build on that and hopefully put him in the position where he's going to be a star since he's already a world. He was an interim champion. Now he's a unified champion. 
him to have to miss out a fight because of an injury. They're going to try to make that fight happen. Is out there. I don't know about Cub Swanson. I, I think I might rather see Brian Ortega versus Max Holloway. Holloway already fought Swanson, and he stopped. And it him. came up too. Brian Ortega. So I mean, as well. we've already seen that fight. Why not make it a new fight? Why not put him Brian Ortega? Brian Ortega is like one. What his last three or four fights? Yes. By stoppage. That is so true. Two young guys on the way up. Why not take that fight? I had another name I wanted to throw in there. Um, tell me what you think about this. What about Chang Sun Jung? Is it that would be a good fight. Is he is he back? I thought yeah. he was injured. Um, I think he is back. I think he is. Uh, I don't think he's scheduled for a fight, but I think he is back. If if he's back, I would t- I would take that fight. I, I'm not too keen. I I like Swanson. If he if he gets a fight, I won't hate it. But he already had a chance. He could have knocked off Holloway and already been in the position. Swanson's always lost the fights he's needed to win to get to a title. So I can't really ever go with them. But Ortega has been on a win streak. He's a young guy. He's he, and he's on a winning streak. I can see him going, or I can see Chan Sung Young. I can see him going. But I, I don't know that he's really back. If he's back from injury, it'll be something that would pique people's interest if he's willing to take it. But outside of him, I'd go with Ortega over Swanson because I've already seen Swanson versus Holloway, and it did not go very well for Cub Swanson. It wasn't really even competitive if you think about it. Yeah, the only thing. Well, I like the idea of the Brian Ortega fight. My only thing is that I um, wonder if they would be uh, cannibalizing a future contender. Cause I think Ortega has some star power there, and I think if, if they kind of breed him in the right way, he could be something bigger if he does face um, Holloway in the future. Yeah, I mean, from, from that, that is, you know, I didn't even think about that. You have a young contender, a young guy who's getting some acclaim and getting some notoriety behind him. Do you really want to sacrifice him this early? That's a good point. I mean, if you're going to go by that logic, then the best thing, you go with somebody from the old guard, but who is it? Is it a rematch with Jose Aldo? Is it Cub Swanson? Is it Chan Sung Young? I mean, who do you go with out of those three? Because Young hasn't been active. Holloway's been super active. I'd have to favor him over all all three of those guys. Two of them, we, we've seen them fight fairly recently. So I'd put Chan Sung Young in the, in the lead. But I don't know that I believe that he, he beats Holloway at this stage. I've seen him have some improvements. He's looked good, but I, I don't know that he beats Holloway, but if Holloway wants to fight, they've got to find someone to him, someone to, for him to fight, which means they're going to have to go the veteran route. If they're going to try and save and build on Ortega's hype, and they're going to have to go with a veteran. And that's the most likely one, I think, is going to be Cub Swanson. I can't imagine they do the Aldo rematch this soon after. The, the Cub Swanson fight was at least a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was rather least, Yeah. So at least they could, they could spin it that he's improved so much because he's on a win streak. But, um... I guess Aldo and Swanson would be the best options. Um, all right, good, good. So another point I want to talk about this week was Zufa boxing uh, and whether or not this is a real thing that we're going to see in the future. Talk to me about what your thoughts are on the idea of Zufa branching off in, into boxing. There's one thing I don't understand about this Zufa boxing thing. And somebody else mentioned it. I think it was uh, Steve Kim might have been on Twitter. Boxers generally, name boxers, get paid more than name MMA fighters. In general, more times than not. Adrian Broner's equivalent doesn't make what Adrian Broner makes in boxing and MMA. That doesn't happen. So my question is, what, how are they going to spend this to the MMA fighters who are getting paid this 3 to show and 3 to win and 10 to show to 10 to win when they're paying some boxer uh, who might have less name value 
and even 50,000 or 100,000 just to fight, period. And the fact that you said that, um, I want to I wanna pull up a tweet I saw earlier this week. Because bo- boxers, boxers are not going to fight with what MMA fighters get paid. That's not happening. There's a, they're, they're not doing that. I saw a tweet earlier this week. I hope I can find it. Um, I believe it was this week where it listed out. Can you name the top? Can you name the top ten flyweights in boxing right now? Oh, uh, actually, I just. You know what? You, you got to give me all ten uh, without looking. I think this I is can't the right name division. I think it's a chocolate. Is it Chocolatito Estrada? Um, is it Inaway? I can't say his name right. I just well, saw him fight recently, and then there's a, there's a Thai boxer who just won too, it's like Romachai. I can't remember his name. So, either way, this is my point. I was looking at a tweet from this week that looked at the payouts of the top ten flyweights in boxing right now. None of them make less than two hundred k. I guarantee you that, other than Demetrius Johnson, none of the flyweights in the UFC are making two hundred k. They might not. Be, the top ten may not be making two hundred k combined. So how are you going to sell this to boxers or how are they going to sell this to mixed martial artists that they're not paying at all? Because there's no way on earth you can tell me that the UFC can branch off into zoo for boxing, find a way to make it successful and generate more revenue while the mixed martial artists are sitting there like, what the hell's going on? Half of them may say, fuck it, we're going, we're, we're going to start boxing. I mean, like, what, like, there's no way they can pitch this. I don't see how they can pitch this and pull this off successfully without creating a riot in their own roster. Exactly. And you know what? You know what would back them into that corner the worst? Because in boxing, there's multiple promoters. There's no one organization. So they have to compete against Top Rank, against Golden Boy, against Mayweather Promotions, against Rock Nation, even though they're not very good. They have to compete against all these guys, against um, Triple G's promoters, the Lofflers, and K1 promotions, and Eddie Hearn's promotional company. You have to compete against these guys for talent. And if you're telling them, I'm going to give you 50000 to show and 50000 to win, thanks, Dana, but no thanks. You have to show them the money. They're not just coming over to your promotion just because you're Dana White. You're going to have to put out money, which means you've got to compete. You've got to match, you've got to match contracts. The UFC is the highest paying in mixed martial arts, so they don't have to match anything. They set the market value. So like you said, you're going to have a guy who's a champion making 200000 You're going to have a guy who nobody even knows about $200,000. we are not even talking about sponsorships because in boxing, you have sponsorships. You get sponsored by beer companies. You get sponsored by car companies. You get sponsored. They're not going to be able to pull the, there's no sponsorship in Zufa Boxing. That's not working. That is not working. No boxer is going to give up the couple hundred thousand dollars if not millions of dollars they make for sponsorships canelo makes millions from sponsorships Glovkin million mayweather millions from sponsorships they're not giving that up for 50 and 50. there's no way they don't have the they don't have the they don't have the the gravitas they don't have the power in the boxing world to call those type of shots so like you said you're gonna have mma fighters over there scrounging for nickels and this guy who's got you know four or five fights but was an olympian is getting paid a hundred thousand dollars a fight doing here well, what am i doing and, and think speak- about this the biggest name in mma where did he get his biggest payday in he boxing wasn't fighting in the octagon in boxing and this kind of and you, you know you brought up money which will, which will bring me to the next um news topic i want to talk about according to her 
uh, manager, home is out of fighting Chris Cyborg. Like it's basically not going to happen. And this isn't, and this isn't because of a lack of wanting to fight her, like we saw with Jermaine Deuteronomy. This is solely based on money. And I wonder if the fact that now that we see Frankie Edgar's out of UFC 219, if that will put pressure on them to make this fight happen here. Because now Home and Cyborg have more value. They were originally supposed to be on, on this fight, too, as well. They've been pushing to be on, on this fight card. And without, without a main event, and if they can't find a replacement for Holloway, this could be a main event fight right here. This could easily be a main event fight. What do you think about the fact that, that they can't get this fight made? And do you think now with Edgar being out of that out of that card, this fight should happen? First of all, I don't really believe Holly Holm wants to fight. The fact that she's demanding all this extra money or they want money tells me you don't really want the fight. I mean, you want it if they're going to pay you crazy. If they're going to pay you crazy money, you can pay me $100 million, I'll fight Mayweather. When you she's, just trying to money, she's trying to shore up some... Uh, Insurance funds in case if she gets hurt. Hey, that's the risk you take. You chose to be a fighter. You could have been a teacher. You could have been a, a loan loan officer. That that's a choice you make. I mean, I'm sorry. It it what comes with the it comes with the job. And I kind of blame Poem because I don't really believe she wants to fight. She always was talking about catchway this that. If she wanted the fight, she could have had the fight with with Cyborg anytime she wants. The UFC would have loved for someone to want to fight Cyborg. Not just say they want to, but actually sign the papers. So she, she could have that fight anytime she wants. She's in control. She's the name. She's a more popular person. She's the one who has the win over Ronda. She's actually the one in control. She's technically speaking the A-side. So she could get the fight whenever she wants. Kind of her fault. On Cyborg's fault, I'm going to say it's Cyborg's fault for one reason. I understand Cyborg wants to get paid. I understand she wants to get paid the right amount of money given her position as a champion and the best pound-for-pound -pound women's fighter. But this is the way I look at it. When you're not the A-side, you take what you're given, you get that big win so that you can move to the next stage of your career. Right now, Floyd Mayweather's the A-side, right? He calls all the shots, doesn't he? All the he shots. Wasn't the -side against, he wasn't the A-side against Oscar De La Hoya. Oscar De La Hoya gave him a plate full of dog food. He fought. He ate it. So that he could get in position to build his brand and have a... Have a um, a career-defining win. Sometimes you have to take short money to get ahead. Sometimes you have to be willing to take a risk to get to the next stage. And Cyborg isn't a name. She hasn't beaten a name yet. She doesn't have any not real notoriety. She's known more of as a Wanderlei in a dress. She she doesn't have any notoriety because she hasn't beaten anybody in like five years. So if she really wants to fight with home, take some short money, knock home the hell out, and use that to build yourself and to say, okay, now y'all have to pay me. All right, I knocked her out. I'll, I'll take this fight. I'm not going to do any negotiations. It's on a one-fight deal. I knocked her out. Now you got to come pay me. Sometimes you have to take short money to get ahead because you're not in any position to call shots. She's not. Even if the fight gets pressure now, if they pay her more money, they're going to pay home even more money because home's the name person. She's the one who fights actively. She's the one who's a former champion. She's the one who's a former boxing champion. She's the one with all the cachet. Cyborg doesn't really have any cachet right now. Right now, Cyborg is, she's like Clubber Lang. She needs that win over Rocky. That's she, true. She's, right now, she's a boogie woman. She needs the win. Not fighting Cyborg doesn't do anything to Holmes' bottom line. Holmes will still make good money. She'll still be a co-main event or a main event. So, 
what does fighting Cyborg do for her except risk her health? Cyborg needs to fight. Cyborg needs to win. Home doesn't need to win. She beats Cyborg. Yeah, it's great. It's not going to be bigger than Ronda. She loses to Cyborg. Yeah. It's, it's what people expect to happen. Cyborg's the only one who really wins from this fight. So Cyborg's the one who should be making sacrifices. Take your short money. Beat the hell out of Holly Holm. Move on to the next stage. Now you can say, I'm the pound for pound best. I beat the girl who beat Ronda. Nobody else wants to fight me. But by trying to play hardball, she's not going to get paid more money than, than Holly. And if that's what she's expecting, sorry, it's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. They're not, Holly's not taking less money than Cyborg. Holly's in the driver's seat. So Cyborg has to decide what she wants to do. Does she want the fight? Or does she want to get paid up front? Because she might get paid more, but she ain't getting paid more than Holly. I will guarantee you that much. I can definitely uh, agree with you on that there. Um, so speaking of fights, I want to go and, you know, before we close out today's show, we still got a lot to talk about. Let's look, let's look at UFC Fight Night 120, which is this weekend. Um, but the pretty big main event. There's a, couple, there's a couple of important fights on this card. But we have Dustin Poirier and Anthony Pettis. Uh, what are some of your thoughts about this fight here? And I want to talk about some things that Dustin Poirier has said this week. But looking at this fight here, how do you see it going down? Me personally, I like Dustin Poirier. Love him to death. I think he gets hit too he gets hit too often, way too often, and Pettis is not someone you want to get hit often against. But what do you think about about this fight here and break it down for me? I, I know people who know Dustin. They say when anybody spars with him, he just get he's just so good. He just outclasses guy. He makes world class guys look like they're amateur or lightweight fighters. The thing with Dustin is he's not consistent. It's easy to drag him into fighting the wrong fight. And as good as a fighter as he is, as many skills as he shows, multiple times because someone's challenged him or pushed back, he's fought the wrong fight. He fought against Michael Johnson. He's a way more skilled fighter than Michael Johnson. It's not even close. He got knocked out because he tried to exchange with Michael Johnson. He was handed, He was running a seminar on Eddie Alvarez. But the way it did, because he started, he hit, Eddie Alvarez started brawling and swinging and hit him a couple times and he decided, I'm going to bite down and exchange with Eddie Alvarez. Who the hell does that? This is the most ridiculous game plan ever. He's got all the skills necessary to beat almost everybody he faces, and he fights dumb fights. He, I know for a fact he, he was told to grapple against Conor McGregor. He didn't do it. He decided, I'm going to strike with him. Why would you do that? Why would you do that when you have a clear path for victory? You've got his level of wrestling and his level of groundwork and ground and pound. Why would you choose to just exchange exclusively on the feet? Because you don't always have, even though you have a high-level skill, you get caught up, goes out the window. Your fight IQ goes out the window. And that's what's happened to him routinely in the biggest spot. This is yet another big spot. And even though Anthony Pettis isn't the athlete he used to be, Anthony Pettis has never been knocked out. And even now, when he's taking shots and lots of shots, I haven't really seen him. He got stopped by, by Holloway, but that was at a weight class he shouldn't have been fighting at. And that was body shots. He's never really been just outright stopped. I've seen... I've seen um, Poirier dropped, hurt, stunned, and rocked by guys who are not striker than Anthony Pettis is. I'm just going to go off athleticism. I'm going to go off of power. I'm going to go off of durability. All those things favor Pettis. And it's too easy to get Poirier off his mark. And I really think Poirier's chin and his ability to recover aren't what they used to be. I think Pettis still can take punishment. I think he can still go hard five rounds, three rounds. I don't think that I don't think that um, I don't think that Poirier can really take a lot of abuse. The same the same guy that Pettis pushed around and Jim Miller and beat up, that guy was going back and forth with Poirier because once again Poirier got dragged into a brawl 
And when it starts coming to taking shot for shot, his chin, his body started failing him. And I think it fails him again. He's got the better skills. He's got he's got the broader amount of skills. He's got the deeper, he's got the larger depth of skills. But once again, he doesn't always fight smart and his durability is not what it used to be. I'm thinking Pettis uh, wins the decision. He might stop him somewhere between the second and third round. It won't take much. If Pettis can hit him, hit him clean, hit him square a couple times, I think he stops him. So, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you there, too. I see this fight ending via stoppage. I see, I kind of see Pettis styling on him. I mean, I, I see it getting violent and getting violent fast because, like you said, Poirier is very, he almost feels like he, how can I put it into words? He's a guy who, um, who wants to go out there and make a, like, make a big statement and prove, like, he has, like, he has a chip on his shoulder for lack of a better yeah. term. And I think he gets himself in, in bad situations. Against Eddie, it almost worked out perfectly. It almost worked out well. I don't think Pettis, Anthony Pettis is that guy to, 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 to do that with. Nope. He's a much harder hitter than Eddie. And his chin's much better than Eddie's at this point. You still haven't seen Pettis really, really get rocked and knocked around. You, you really haven't seen that. I've, I've seen Poirier get rocked and stunned in his last two fights. I saw him get knocked cold. And like f three fights ago, I saw him like just blasted, knocked out cold. I've seen that happen before. And you, you don't recover from that. And as good as he is, if he doesn't fight with at the utmost discipline, which he never has, whenever faced with a guy with comparable ability and experience and skill, he's never shown that kind of discipline. If he doesn't do that, he's going to lose. And I, that's how I think he's going to lose. He's going to get into a kickboxing, he's going to get into an exchange, and he will not win those exchanges. Pettis can take it. I don't believe that Poirier can anymore. Yeah, I'm definitely with you on 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 that there. Um, before we talk about what else stands out on this card here, we have John Dotson and Marlon Morales. I think this is on the prelims too as well. Um, what do you think about this fight here, man? I think, in my opinion, if I was in Marlon's corner, this would not be the fight that I would have given him, especially not after Rafael Sunsau. Had he defeated Rafael Sansao, maybe I would have given him this fight as a as a way to get to Cody Garbrandt or or TJ now because remember Dotson knocked TJ out, so defeating yep. TJ may, may be a path to um, defeating Dotson may be a path to TJ. But I wouldn't have given him this fight coming off of that loss to Rafael Sansao. Break down this fight here and tell me what you see. Yeah, this is really bad for Marlon because Marlon's biggest advantage is he's so dynamic. He's so versatile in his striking and his wrestling and grappling. He's just such an athlete that that even when he's not textbook, he's so effective. But the fact of the matter is, and we talked about this before he ever came to the UFC, I said, we know what he can do, but we have no idea what happens when that gap in talent isn't as broad as it usually is. Because when he fought in WSOF, he, he had a huge physical advantage over guys, power, durability, timing, reflexes. We didn't have any idea what would happen when when, when that gap didn't exist and when that gap wasn't as wide. And when he fought Asensio, even though Asensio isn't the athlete he is, Asensio's a way better than average athlete. He's very experienced and he's very skilled. And all of a sudden you saw Marlon who wasn't as dominant. He wasn't as dominant. He wasn't explosive consistently. He couldn't find his range. He couldn't put things together. He had moments, but he could never get things going. And with his physical tools and his offensive skill set, he should have been able to have his moment and then take the fight over and he was never able to do either one of them he never had a big enough moment to turn the fight in his favor and he could never build on the moments 
to win rounds and, t- and win, a, win a decision. And now he's facing a guy who's just as dynamic, who is one of the biggest finishers in, in two divisions and one of the best athletes in two divisions. So now that athletic advantage is gone, that power advantage is gone. And Dodson, even though he's not fighting, he's not super smart, he's been fighting a much more disciplined, a much more deliberate, a much more controlled fight. That fight he fought against Lineker, even though he lost it, that was some some of the best Dodson you've seen. He was defensively responsible. He was using all the tools. He was controlling the range. He was picking his shots. And against Wineland, he really showed a lot of craft and a lot of patience. And he broke him down deliberately. He didn't take chances. He didn't lose focus. He didn't let his work rate drop off. He didn't let his defense drop off. He fought a deliberate, controlled, disciplined fight. And when he's fighting like that, that's problematic for someone like Moraes because Moraes can get a little wild. He can get a little try to assert himself offensively and if you got Dodson picking his spots and in the holes it, it's just a long night for Marlon I, I would not have taken this fight I mean I, I get why he's taking it a win over Dodson puts him puts a stamp on his name puts him right back in the mix as, as far as a contender but with Dodson there's so little room for margin for error he, he's, he's used to operating with a huge physical advantage and usually guys who are used to operating with that physical advantage when that advantage is gone their defense falls apart and their offense becomes surprisingly ineffective. And I think that's what's going to happen. I'm not saying he won't have his moments, but, um, I, I mean, Dodson's just so much more experienced. And he's faced guys of comparable physical and athletic ability and offensive skills as, as Marlon. Marlon's never faced a guy who brings the experience and the athletic ability that Dodson brings to the table. And the experience, I think, is going to be the difference. The experience is going to be a big difference. We know that Dodson can make it through against top-end athletes and top-end grapplers and top-end smart, punishing fighters. I don't know what Marlon does against a guy who can do the damage that Dodson can do. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely concerned about this fight. Um, what else stands out for you uh, on this card here? We have um, Matt Brown, Diego Sanchez. We have um, Clay Guida, Joe Lozon. we got some other fights, too. What stands out to you? on this card here it's weird to me because you have these last these last two fights i mean diego's going up to welterweight to fight matt brown i don't really think diego's a welterweight um matt brown says he might not retire now and i i I think matt brown's gotten as much out of his talent as he's going to get i don't know who in the welterweight division that he can really compete against anymore i mean donald cerrone isn't isn't nearly the welterweight they make him out to be based on his ranking and he stopped brown cold I don't think Brown is a world-class welterweight anymore. I, I really don't think he's ever was an elite world-class welterweight either. He's another guy who beat everybody else, but is ne- ne- never able to find wins over the top guys in his division. So I, I really think it's, it's his time to either retire or get to a smaller organization where the level of talent and the level of skills is a more manageable for him. And even though everybody's saying that Diego, Diego can't win this, I still believe Diego has at least um, 45, 50% chance of winning this. I can see Diego getting a takedown and submitting Matt Brown. I really could. I'm not saying it'll happen because I don't know that, DJ, that Diego can take the punishment. But if Diego gets him to the ground some way, somehow, and you tell me that he can't finish him, I'm not going to believe you. <laughs> because Diego's a good enough grappler and scrambler that he can finish anybody that he can get in the positions to. He's never had a problem grappling or, or scrambling with guys. It's been getting the fight to the ground and it's been exchanging with guys on the feet. But I, I really believe he can get Matt Brown down because Matt Brown's in decline, in my opinion. 
and I believe that Man, he comes down to a grappling match. He's in decline in his own opinion because he's talking about retiring. This is going to be his last fight. He's yeah, but he, about, he um, recently said he might not. He might yeah, not retire. Depends on how it like goes. Corner, but hell, the hell with you talking about him being on, on a decline. He says he's on a damn decline. Yeah, I mean, he's on the decline and, and on the ground. I don't care what you say about Diego. Diego is one of the better grapplers in mixed martial arts history. He's been on the ground extended extensive periods of time with some really good guys, and he's never been close to getting tapped out. I mean, you saw what he did to Marcin Held. Is under as underperforming as Held has been. Held is still in a very effective guy on the ground, and Diego beat his ass. So I think Diego still even money. If he gets the fight to the ground. I'm giving up. I'm I'm saying it's Diego. But either way, both of these guys should be on the way out. Neither one of them is a top contender. Neither one of them has shown the, the durability necessary to compete at a world-class level. And both of them have been in a lot of punishing, exhausting, to be subjecting themselves to this any further. Matt Brown's got a career as a coach. I don't know why he wants to continue doing this. And it, But if he needs to, he's doing a smaller organization with a more manageable talent level. As far as Lausanne and Guida, Guida, Guida's got to be coming in close to his career. And Lausanne, Lausanne's been, Lausanne, it'd be kind to say he's on a decline. He didn't really beat Marcin Held, and he's been in some really tough fights himself. I don't really think he should be doing this too much longer either. So that's interesting because you have these guys who've kind of been around for multiple versions of UFC. I mean, Diego wasn't the first tough. Clay Guida's been in MMA for how long? He's, he's been a name in MMA forever. Joe Lazan's been in been in um, in the UFC since what Tough Five when they had a, he he knocked out Jens Pulver right before Tough Five so he's been in there we're on like Tough Twenty Six now awfully long in the tooth who've been in a lot of wars who made their name in the UFC who got some acclaim and some money from there yeah, I really think they should be calling it a day I have nothing against it. they want to keep fighting that's fine with somebody in their family or somebody in their team needs to be considering retirement for all of them maybe Guida because he hasn't really been guys but even even at his point he, he's not really an elite guy at his weight class either at this stage I mean I'm not gonna disagree with you there as much as I enjoy seeing Joe Lozon compete every time it's like at what point in time is, is enough enough at what point in time is enough enough yeah I mean I understand you need money I know you got to pay your kids but you had to know this this day was gonna come at some point or another and if you didn't, then I can't have any less any, any more sympathy for you than I have for a teacher who lives outside her means or a nurse who didn't save her money. The fact of the matter is you, you live in the real world. You know it's a business. You know how life works. And you didn't prepare yourself for the next phase. And you have family and people depending on you. I don't care if you're a fighter. There's a part of being a man and being a contributor to society that, that you have to take into account when you take this career on. So if you're going to take this career on, you need to be acting in a manner that's according where you set yourself up for the next phase and whatever money you make, you're putting yourself in a position where you can live a functional life because I don't know why you will risk brain damage and not have anything to show for it financially. And Joe Lozano's a really smart guy. He has a, He's like an IT guy and he owns his MMA camp. Like he doesn't have to do this. He really doesn't. And I don't know why he continues to do it. I think it's just love, man. Love for the game. Well, and speaking of love, man, let's uh, talk about what are you writing for MMA ratings this week? What are you, um, what are you working on? Um, I saw you I had, had a piece article. that went out today. Yeah, I had a, the article on uh, the Anthony Pettis, Dustin Poirier fight. Um, my big thing with that is I like to do these, these uh, things you need to know, and I kind of take, 
I, I kind of expound on things that people talk about when they talk about these fighters. A lot of times when you have breakdowns, people give you kind of a shallow breakdown and hit certain key points. What I do is I kind of expand on those key points. Like, I really break down Dustin Poirier and his fight style. I break down what makes Pettis effective, not from a physical or a technical point, but from a strategical point of view. And I kind of look at the trends in their career, they beat and who they face, and why that's going to determine where this fight goes and determine the future for both guys. So it's just kind of a, I don't know, it just kind of builds on some common things known about them and it kind of expands on them to give the fans a better understanding of what's at risk, how the fight might go, and why the fight might go that way. That's what's up, man. Um, I have a piece on the idea of TJ versus Mighty Mouse is probably coming out later on this week. Um, there's a piece on Connor and uh, GSP from earlier in the week. What else I got going on, dude? I um, just did a piece on the Panthers earlier tonight. Got a preview coming out hopefully by Friday, Friday or Saturday on Combat Jiu-Jitsu Worlds that are on Sunday. Um... Yeah, that's probably about it for this week, man. So far, I'm thinking about doing something on, on. I was trying to do something on Ric Flair too, but I got my pitch um, denied. So you know, hopefully that's something I don't have to do this week. Uh, uh, one more thing, what did you think about the uh, the win? I did a a part a piece for uh, Severe MMA. I did a Don't Sweat the Technique for Emily Dacute, and I pretty much knew uh, McFarlane was going to win. But I know you're a very big fan of her as a grappler and as a fighter. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that fight? And what did you think about that with that win for her? Did no idea. Did not see the fight itself. Um, I do think that McFarlane has star power, uh, and especially at a time when Bellator is looking to leverage their women. Um, that well, that sounded so bad, but yeah, um, McFarlane is is coming around at a time where I think that they're trying to do the most with their um, women's division. So I, I think she's in the right place at the right time, and I like what I see from her. She's definitely grown since that um, soccer mom fight, so I don't have any problems with her at all. I think that crossover with the the combat, the grappling, really helps her because, you know, I mean, like, she's actively competing in the grappling at a very high level, Mm -hmm. and now she's a champion in a a major promotion. I really think that we discussed before about fighters competing in in grappling tournaments, and I think her success in both really will benefit each combat sport individually because now when she inserts a combat, you know, grappling event, she's the Bellator champion. That, That carries some cachet. That'll bring some more attention. And when she competes, when, you know, how everybody likes to say, oh, we've got one of the best grapplers in the division, it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to have somebody be a legitimately one of the best grapplers in their way in the division, not just in MMA, but in the actual grappling realm. That carries a little bit more cachet in itself. So when the UFC crowns their flyweight champion, you can say, like, well, we've got this girl who's one of the very best grapplers in the world and one of the very best grapplers in the mixed martial arts world. You know, and it gives them that kind of leg up because you know they're always fighting for that bragging, the bragging rights. And, you know, Bellator has the first main North American organization to have a flyweight champion. She made sure to say that. So it kind of it kind of gives them a one up over the UFC right now. It does. It, it does. Um, so, yeah, with that in mind, man, we're going to go ahead and close the show out. Maybe almost went for two hours. We had a hell of a lot to talk about today, like I said. We will be back next week um, to recap UFC Fight Night 120 and any other news that's gone down from this week, man. Uh, stay frosty, my friend. And you know what? As as some people would say, as Luke Thomas would say, I know he's probably going to kill me for that. But um, I got to come up with my own catchphrase to end the show. But this week, 
I will be quoting more than enough of Ric Flair. If they allowed me, I would wear my Ric Flair t-shirt to work tomorrow. They'll probably throw me out, but you know, it is what it is. I got the aviators already. <laughs> Going hey, in tomorrow. Oh, that is a great idea. That is, I need to get me some aviators just for that too. But um, yeah, man, let's go ahead and close it out. And thank you for all you do, dude. And we will be back next week. Yeah, nice to be back. Thank you for everybody who's listening and supporting the show. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and put us put MMA ratings into Google. There's a, all, all sorts of places you can find us that I know about. So uh, thank you for your support, and we will keep bringing you the best analysis and news discussion in MMA. Have a great week, everybody. All right.